All right, so welcome to the first podcast, Coal Region Campfire. Just want to tell you guys a little bit about what the premise of this podcast is, what the what the vision is going forward. So I basically want to interview, showcase any people, place, or thing that's really special to the to the coal region. It doesn't have to be something big. You know, I do plan on doing one episode where I, I just open up the phone book and pick out a name and, and see if I go spend, a, you know, a, a couple hours with that person. So it doesn't matter the, the occupation, education level, uh, age or anything. I just want to kind of paint a picture of the coal region. I just moved back to the area like two years ago. I love the area. I think it's great. Uh, I think there's so much history here that a lot of people don't know about, myself included. So this is kind of an exploration for, for myself to kind of just kind of explore all the history here. And I got to tell you, as I'm, as I'm digging in here, I'm seeing so many things that you never knew were from this area. But we hope to we hope we'll be able to showcase uh, a lot of it. Coal Region Campfire is the name that may change. In terms of the format of the show, I, I'm I'm not exactly 100% sure. It's going to be kind of a, a learning process. Uh, well, ideally, I would love to have almost like I have dinner with somebody and I just record a dinner conversation. So I want it to be very free-flowing, you know, conversational and be fun, uh, be a fun conversation. It's not going to be, you know, formal. Um, that's one great thing about a podcast is it gives us kind of the liberty to be informal and kind of have a real conversation and not be canned with our responses and everything else. And so far, the interviews we've done, they've been great. Everyone's kind of been real engaged. Uh, they've been excited. So hopefully that, you know, translates when you guys listen. You can listen. Okay, so how do you listen? Uh, you can listen on iTunes. Uh, that's what I'm going to put it on first. Uh, so if you could subscribe there, then you'll get a episode. I'm, I'm going to release an episode every week, so every Wednesday. And they'll be anywhere from 20 minutes to, to an hour. It all depends on, on how the, the, the interview goes, how the conversation goes. But if you want to rate on there, that would be great. And the best thing you can do is if you enjoy it, just tell someone about it. I want, obviously, as many people as possible uh, to listen. Um, <clears throat> we do have... Uh, so a couple people I did interview so far, um, we have our first guest today is going to be Fred Finelli. I'll, I'll get to him a little later. Uh, Savas Logothitis, who just opened up the wheel and the Crimson House in Pottsville. He, he's doing great things. Uh, Joe Snedeker from WDP, who was who who awesome, as you could imagine. He's as uh, wacky in person as he is on TV, but, but a, a very good wacky. Also, Bobby Ray Schaefer, who plays... Bob Vance from Vance Refrigeration on The Office was kind enough uh, to join us. And uh, on Wednesday, I believe, I'm interviewing the uh, writer who actually wrote The Sandlot. He's from Wilkesbury. So in terms of coal region, it's going to pretty much span central PA for the most part. Uh, but you know the area, Scranton, Wilkesbury, you know, Pottsville, uh, Bloomsburg, all that area. That's all kind of the, the coal region. If you think there's something interesting, if there's an interesting person or whatever it may be, uh, feel free to email me, uh, alfredomercuri at gmail.com. So A-L-F-R-E-D-O-M-E-R-C-U-R-I at gmail.com. Please, any ideas, people, places, things, whatever it is, please let me know. And if I could get a hold of somebody and, and they're willing to, to talk about it, that'd be great. Now, for the first... Uh, podcast here we have uh, Fred Finelli I'm sure you guys have all heard of him uh, he's a renowned lawyer not just in this area but statewide nationwide I mean he's done huge cases uh, if you google him you'll see 
you know, dating back to, to the early 90s. I mean, he takes high-profile cases. He is one of the best out there. And I actually never had met him. He knew my parents, but I actually, me, never formally uh, met him. And I reached out to him. He was gracious enough uh, to take the time. He was very excited, as was I. And uh, he came up to the house. We did an interview. And <clears throat> I think it went well. I'm biased, but I think you guys will uh, find out soon enough that uh, he's a real interesting guy, real hard worker, smart, and loves the coal region. So take a listen. Alfredo, thank you for inviting me to your home. This is this oh, is really neat and, and a great opportunity to uh, to meet you and uh, to spend time in your home. And I think that you and your fiance. Not yet, but but soon. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah, she she gave me a, a strict thing that I can't uh, ask between November and March because that's like cliche. It kind of is. Yeah, I have, I have to take her side on that. I mean, one. she said she might make an exception, but so we'll see. Well, you know what? We'll see exactly. <laughs> but you don't get to make the call, like. The girls, no. the girls make the decisions. Right. So, you know, I just follow I'm married almost 30 years, I can tell yeah, you. I'm not From, listening to you. Yes, yeah. Cheers. Cheers. <coughs> so, again, that's not as good as the other years. This is like an okay wine. If you're a uh, dad and you made it, I'm sure it's great. We actually have the, the new one coming in soon. Well, can you include an old friend? Yeah, yeah, no, no. You're, you're on the okay. list now. Did you're I, good. I make the list? Okay, okay. good. All right. Um, so, yeah, just about the... What I'm trying to do is I'm just trying to interview people like up and down the coal region. Um, there's just so much history and like people, places, things. It's just, I mean, you, when people like, I lived in New York for like six years. When I tell them stories about the coal region, people are like captivated by it. Like they can't, they almost can't believe that like places like this exist. Um, so I just want to just kind of highlight like successful people like yourself. I mean, you know, when I thought of you, I mean, it's, when you say Fred Finelli, and I'm not just you know saying this because because you're taking the time to do this, like it's synonymous with being like the best lawyer around, and that's I mean that's neat to be considered the best at anything. Um, well, thank you, I, Alfredo. That's very nice. And, I, and I think that's unanimous. I mean, I, I don't I don't think I'm the only person who thinks that. I mean, you know, you look at any high profile cases around here, you always you know your name's always there. Yeah. Um, well, it, let, let me tell you, for for me. When I graduated law school, Villanova University in 1982, I had opportunities to work in Philadelphia or other places, but there was never, ever a doubt in my mind that I, I needed to come home. Mm -hmm. I mean, my, fam my, my paternal grandfather moved here from Italy in 1910 and started on a, uh, in a uh, storefront on South Center Street where my Aunt Josephine, who recently passed away uh, last week, lived. So there was such a there was such a connection, a family connection, to this home that we built and was so good to us. So my grandfather moves here in 1910. He has 12 kids. They live on Ridge Avenue and a half a double. There's two kitchens in the place. Every Sunday for as long as I can remember, we we'd go to church and come back to my grandfather and grandmother's place to have spaghetti dinner right mm -hmm. so we all got sucked in we got dialed in we have i have i have dozens of cousins right we and all of us would come to this home to this meeting point uh on ridge avenue in the greenwood hill section of pottsville and we just got so bonded with our family and our community that uh, none of us left uh, all of my cousins 
all of my brothers, um, all of us, we just, we, we're, we're here because we have family, we have connections, we have community, uh, and we just decided that we're going to hunker down and, and make the, make, make the best life we can. And, mm-hmm. and I'll tell you what, after more than 35 years of practicing law, it was the best decision I ever made. Were you ever, were you ever close? Like after you'd done like a, a couple like high profile cases, would anyone ever recruit you from like a Philly or a New York? Oh yeah. I mean, I've, uh, I've had the, the good fortune of trying cases all over the United States really. Um, but I, but locally, uh, it seems most of the high-profile cases end up in our office. Mm-hmm. And I like to say that when the, when the case is over, my former client is now my friend. Hmm. And I see, and the, the, over 35 years, I have the, the benefit of representing people when they're 16, 17, 18 years old. And now there are adults and they've got children and I see them and their children and I get invited to their weddings and their kids' weddings and it's, it's really cool. Hmm. And you can't do that in a big city. You know, when uh, I've got colleagues from Philadelphia and New York and, and so on and they're so anonymous. And, and, uh, and, and so they're, they're not integrated into their community like, mm-hmm. like I am in our community. So when, when, when somebody walks into my office, I probably know their family history. Like when I'm sitting with you, I know your mom, mm-hmm. I know your dad, I know all your cousins, mm-hmm. I know your uncles, right? Right. So when Alfredo Mercury walks into my office, he and I will talk initially about his dad, his mom, his uncle, his grandfather, mm-hmm. right? Everybody. And, and that's the benefit of, of, of this community, you know, knowing everybody's family history. And there's no secrets. We all know each other. Which is a beautiful thing, because you have to be honest. Mm-hmm. And and um, when I when I represent people that I that I maybe maybe not, have not known that well, and I become their friends, then I get integrated into their families' lives. So it's I can't walk down the street now without knowing nearly everybody mm-hmm. on the street because we're all right. part of the community. We're all family, kind of thing. When was that? Did you want to be a lawyer since you were a kid? This is an interesting story. I always thought I'd be a doctor because I was good at math and science. But in ninth grade, I had a teacher at Pottsville High School. I graduated from Pottsville High School in 1975. And my freshman English teacher was a woman named Evelyn Doutlick. Mm-hmm. Okay. And she assigned us an essay. We had to write an essay about anything we were interested in. And if you remember back in the days in high school, writing a paper was a stressful yeah, undertaking, very stressful. right? Um, and I was fascinated at the time with the Battle of the Little Bighorn with, uh, with George Custer. Okay. Okay? So I decided I'm going to write about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. And, and it, it, there was a history teacher at the school, the late John Norton, a great teacher. He, when you say teacher, he was a teacher. Uh, football player too, right? Yes, he was a great yeah. football player. Coal Crackers, right? He, he played for the Coal Crackers, mm-hmm. but he was a wonderful teacher. And every summer, he would go out west and live on reservations and, and, mm-hmm. and get on horsebacks and go into the Rockies and experience these things and bring them back to us, to the kids, and teach us about these things. And he had a great collection of books about the Little Bighorn. So I borrowed his books and I studied them. And I wrote this paper, and if you remember in high school, if you wrote a four or five page paper, that was like a major undertaking. Mm-hmm. So I wrote this paper, 
and I was very proud of it. I turned it in, and a couple of days later, I, I, we get the papers back, and on my paper, there's a big red circle with an F in the middle, and, a, and in big bold letters, see me, exclamation point, exclamation point. And I was stunned. I thought I did a great job, but obviously I'm not as good as I thought I was because this teacher thinks I'm a dope. So I walk up to the front of the room afterwards. I said, Mrs. Dalek, I have my paper here. And you said, see me. And she looks at me and she says, you, sir, are a plagiarist and a liar. <laughs> I said, excuse me? You heard me. You are a plagiarist and a liar, and I'm going to see that you're expelled from this school. That's harsh. It was a little harsh. Now, when you're, uh, how old are you in ninth grade? Uh, 14? I said to her, Mrs. Dalek, I didn't plagiarize anything. Everything I, everything I cited is in the paper, and, 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 and I, I didn't. And every material I used, I got from Mr. Norton. So she said, you go down to the, to the office, and uh, we'll, we'll see you down there. And she comes down, and she accuses me in front of the principal of plagiarizing, and she wants me disciplined. So I said to I've all Mr. Norton's materials. Here they are. And to his credit, he read my paper. He went through the materials, and he defended me. Hmm. So I was cleared of the plagiarism charges. So when I got my paper back a couple of weeks later, and the F was erased, and it was changed to a B, right? So I'm thinking to myself, it's too good to have been written by a high school right. kid. Ergo, I'm a plagiarist. But when the teacher was called out as having been wrong, uh, she couldn't accept it and gave me a B. So at that point, I felt so violated and so vulnerable that I had no one sticking up for me except one guy, Mr. Norton, huh. right? So at that point, I decided I'm going to be a lawyer, and I'm going to stick up for people who can't stick up for themselves, and that's what I did. And you never wavered from that? You just Never wavered from that. That was my goal. From day one, I want to be the guy that sticks up for the people that can't stick up for themselves. Hmm. And you went, so after high school, you went to Pitt, right? I went to Pitt. Um, I graduated Pitt in 1979, and then uh, I went to Villanova University, mm -hmm. uh, completed my degree there, and finished in 1982. And here's another great story. I was not sure where I wanted to be, but one of the one of the giants in my in my mind, one of the great icons of the law locally, was Bill Hutchinson. Now, Bill Hutchinson, at the time, was a legislator in the uh, Pennsylvania legislature for the 125th district and a, and a graduate of the Harvard Law School. I'd have to say the smartest guy I ever met. And he had been recently unceremoniously dumped out of his local law firm because the firm accused him of spending way too much time in Harrisburg and not representing clients. So he decided to form his own firm. So he calls me up and says, I'm, finding, I'm, I'm forming my own firm. I can't pay you very much, but I want you to come home. And I said, uh, well, Mr. Hutchinson, he says, call me Bill. I said, I, I, I would really be honored to work with you. Now, as fate would have it, he decides to run for the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. And as fate would have it, his wife, Louise, <laughs> draws the ballots, and he's the number one pick on the Republican side, 
number two pick on the Democratic side, and you can cross-file. Well, doesn't he win the election? And he's elected to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So now I've got a guy that offered me a job who's no longer a lawyer, <laughs> and he's a justice on the Supreme Court. And I show up to work, but he's now on the, uh, on the court, but he gives me his practice. And he says, I represent widows, I represent coal miners, I represent construction workers, I've got a bunch of cases, and I want you to take them over. And I said, but Bill, you're now a justice on the Supreme Court. How are we going to do this? He said, well, I'm going to put my chambers on the sixth floor of the Thompson Building. Your offices are on the fifth floor of the Thompson Building. Every day at 4 o'clock, we're going to meet, hang out, and I'm going to go over with you whatever's going to happen the next day. So I had all these cases, and I had no clue what I was doing. I couldn't write a deed. I couldn't write a mortgage. I didn't know what happened at a hearing. Mm -hmm. So I now have these clients that, that are entrusted to him that are now entrusted to me. So he would sit down with me then, uh, every day and say, now, tomorrow you're going to be at this hearing, and, it's, and the client's going to be so-and-so, and here's what's going to come up, and here's what this one's going to ask, and here's what that, that one's going to ask, and here's what you got to say. And this went on for the better part of a year to the point where the client started trusting me. And uh, to, to fast forward, four or five years later, President Reagan nominated Bill Hutchinson to the Third Circuit Court of Appeals, which hmm. is the next court below the Pennsylvania, uh, United States Supreme Court, and he was unanimously approved. Uh, and he uh, uh, unfortunately passed in, uh, um, after a bout of cancer. But uh, that's how I got my start, hmm. by Bill Hutchinson, the smartest guy I ever knew from Minersville and proud from Minersville, who could have gone anywhere, and he came home because he loved his people. He loved the coal miners. He loved uh, the widows because he was a kid raised by, his, uh, by a single mother. Hmm. Dad died early. But he had this great intellect, but he had a soft spot, he had a soft spot in his heart for the underdog. So, and he brought me in. And I also had that soft spot for the underdog. And together we worked his practice. And that's how I got my start. So when you, how, how many hours were you working there when you first started? Oh, God. Uh, I, was, I had the good fortune to be single. And I had the good fortune to have no woman interested in me at the time. <laughs> right? So uh, I would be at work no later than 7.30 a.m., I would uh, work straight through till about 5.30. At 5.30, I would go for a run to have a little exercise. Uh, that would go till about 6.30. And then at 6.30, I would come back to the office and stay there till about 9. Come home, uh, watch, uh, watch a little TV, go to bed and get up and do it the next day. And that was seven days a week. And I did that for the better part of... 15 years, I'd hmm. say. Uh, and then, uh, then I decided to take Sundays off. <laughs> <laughs> what was, what yeah. was your first like big case? Like what, what was a case like very high profile that maybe you were a little bit nervous? Like, I don't know, can I do that? You know, like you, you kind of question yourself, but you knew you had to take it to. Uh, yeah. Well, the first like, kind of when you became Fred Finelli, you know, I would say that that case it had to be in 1991. I, I had a lot of cases uh, from 1982 to 1991, but the case that really, I think, uh, solidified my reputation in the community was the case against Robert Russell. 
Robert Russell was from Anais City and was a Marine uh, living in Quantico, Virginia. Robert, a white guy married to his wife, Shirley, a black woman, uh, was alleged to have killed her on the Marine base at Quantico. And Robert came to me uh, and asked me to defend him against this a federal murder trial to take place in Alexandria, Virginia. And the trial was going to start within two months. Now, here I am basically by myself practicing. And I've got a guy asking me to defend him in a federal criminal trial in Alexandria, Virginia. And he has essentially no money. Mm -hmm. But it was a case I had to take. And the evidence against him was overwhelming. He wrote a, he wrote a, uh, a, a he had a, a um, a thing on his computer that the government seized 26 ways to kill my wife. Uh, there was bloodstains in his apartment. So the evidence against him was overwhelming. But I, I wanted to take on the challenge. And, I, and the federal government's power and, and, and ability to, to reach across any line is unprecedented. Mm -hmm. And it was during the Iraq War, during the, the uh, first invasion of Iraq. In fact, we were, so we started the trial. I took the case, and I, and I had to sleep on somebody's sofa for a month while the trial lasted. I had no money for a hotel room. The client couldn't pay me for it, but I wanted to take the case uh, against some pretty significant odds. So I'm sleeping on the sofa, getting up the next day, and walking into court by myself, and the government's represented by a prosecutor and a team of lawyers and FBI agents and... and uh, um, a number of federal agents, they, they had the ability to get a guy off of the battlefield in Iraq and bring him into court uh, within two days. They had people in San Francisco, um, I had a gun manufacturer fly in. So the trial lasted for a month. It was it gathered, uh, it was on CNN, it was on Inside Edition, they made a TV movie about it. Uh, and it was, it captivated our community for a month. So I'd say that was the first big case I had. What was the result? Oh, they convicted him. But they, they were deliberated for three days. Right? And in, as a lawyer, that's like huge, right? It, it was huge because we, we had jurors that weren't sure, even though the evidence on its face seemed to be overwhelming. Mm -hmm. To keep the jury out three days for me at that stage in my career, I thought, you know what? I think I did a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. But it, 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 it cemented my reputation as somebody that, that was willing to take on the impossible task to fight the fight to not be intimidated by overwhelming power, i.e. the federal government, and to, uh, to do what you need to do to represent your client, even if my representation of this guy was unpopular. You know, people mm -hmm. th thought I was crazy for doing it, but you know what? I'm a lawyer. It's my responsibility to take the case and to do my best. And while some people said he's crazy, why would he do such a thing? It cemented my reputation as, mm -hmm. as a guy that's willing to, to do what needs to be done to do the hard thing, to make the tough call. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I think people always say like, oh, you know, if you're a lawyer, how could you, how could you, you know, represent these people? But you have to be objective. I mean, it's almost like you have to remove the emotion from it and, and see the process and everything else involved with it. Well, you're right. I mean, the thing I get most from people is how can you represent somebody when you know they're guilty, mm -hmm. right? And my, my response is, guilty of what? Most times people are overcharged. Uh, they're guilty of something, usually. Uh, but it's the government's responsibility to prove their guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, right? 
And it's better that 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man hang. Mm -hmm. And that was said by John Adams, right? One of the framers of the Constitution. And, and, I, and I believe that, that if, the, if, the, if there's a solid case against somebody, they should be convicted. And it's our job, whether people like it or not, to defend the Constitution. And the Constitution, within the Bill of Rights, has the right to a lawyer, the right to a trial, uh, due process. All of the most important things next to free speech are the rights to be protected as a citizen from an overreaching government. And ordinary citizens have tr trouble with the concept of representing somebody that is guilty. But I'll give you a quick story if I could. Mm -hmm. There was a, a local guy, he was a Secret Service agent uh, who, tr who guarded uh, Reagan and, right? Right. And every time he'd see me, he'd give me a hard time about representing defendants. How can you represent somebody that's guilty? Until one day, his kid got arrested for having a bag of cocaine hmm. on him. And he got arrested, and this fellow came to me and said, my son's been arrested, would you represent him? And I thought, you know what, I'll, I'll represent him, sure, even though you gave me a hard time forever about representing right. people that, that were guilty, right? So I thought that the search of this kid was illegal. So we filed the papers to try to have the evidence suppressed, violating the kid's Fourth Amendment rights, the right to be free from an unreasonable search and seizure. And... Uh, the judge agreed with me and suppressed the evidence, meaning that they, the evidence couldn't be used against the kid, and the charges against him were dismissed. Hmm. And I walked up to this fella. I said, now, for all these years, you've been busting my chops about representing guilty people. I represented your son, who was guilty. Right. Right? How do you feel now? Yeah, he, he probably had no problem with it, right? He said, touche, counselor. Until, until you walk in somebody else's shoes, right. you don't know what it feels like. So I felt pretty good about that. Now, quickly going back to that 91 case, that was before DNA, right? That was before DNA uh, was really being used. But um, what, in terms of the blood evidence in that case, they had a, a blood spot on concrete, a rust-colored spot that was, then, that was then removed by muriatic acid mm -hmm. shortly thereafter. Which and they, they were able to trace to my client buying the muriatic acid at a hardware store, so the evidence against this this guy was pretty pretty substantial. Hmm. But I was not daunted by the fact that you know what I'm representing a guilty guy. Uh, the public opinion is going to think I'm a bad guy. But I thought you know what this is my job. This is what I'm supposed to do. And uh, if people have a problem with it, then so be it. That's 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 their problem. Now this is uh, in, you've seen a Godfather, right? Mm-hmm. How come he what tells, Italian guy hasn't seen how the Godfather? Come, how come he tells him to leave the gun? Isn't that stupid or no? Well, well, because in, in in the Godfather, there were no fingerprints and no serial number, and you don't want to get, get caught with the gun on you. Right, right. So, but what if you? It's better leaving the gun there than getting rid of it. Well, now you're asking me to give advice to potential people. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. So let's let's. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that off the road. Yeah. How's that? Um, I feel like being a lawyer is like my industry. Um, there's no like best. It's very subjective. Like lawyer, I think is the closest thing to like um, it's a competitive game. You, you win and lose in, in a court case, you know? So what part of like, if you're going into a court case, is, is there, you don't have to obviously mention names, but is there like lawyers on the other side that you, you kind of know you, you could beat them just because you're that good? 
Well, I don't want to sound right. I, I know arrogant, right? Uh, but but or other lawyers that you know you have to really do your homework. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's like baseball players. I uh-huh. mean, there's stars and there's or basketball players. There's there's role players and there's stars. And 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 in our community, just like in the in the medical community, just like in your business, there's people that are really good at what they do, mm-hmm. and there's people that are just mediocre at what they do. Um, so yeah, and. I'll tell you who I fear the most in court. I don't fear the lawyer who wears the $5,000 suit who walks into court and is real slick, okay? I can beat that guy. I fear the young lady who just graduated from law school who has, who's unsure of herself, who's kind of fumbling with the papers, and the jury's looking at her, and they're feeling sorry for her. Mm. Right? They know she's trying hard. Right. The judge has given her a hard time. She's fumbling over her questions. Right? And I'm thinking to myself, I cannot look slick. Right? If I look like I'm picking on her, and I don't mean to pick on, uh, to suggest right. one, uh, or him, the uh, young person, then I'm going to be not well regarded by this jury. Is that the day like you wear like a wrinkled suit or something like that? Yeah. So, so exactly. So if, if, if I, if I've got a brand new lawyer who's, who's, uh, who's trying their first case, I'm not coming in an expensive suit, right? I'm not wearing any fancy tie. Uh, I'm dressing down and I'm trying to show this young person complete respect and not doing anything to, and that's hard to do. Like when you want to win and you want to do your best for your client, but at the same time not insult this younger person who's not as experienced, that's a, that's a tightrope to mm-hmm. walk. So give me the Philly lawyer, the New York lawyer, any day of the week with 40 years experience. I want to fight with that guy. Okay? I like my chances. Mm-hmm. But don't give me the first year young guy or young gal out of law school because, you know, the jury's going to root for them and want to pray for them. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah I mean, there's, there's that tightrope there you have, to, you have to play. How do you, how do you stay humble? Like, because I imagine you've got to be just as hungry as, I mean, that's a challenge to be just as hungry as you were when you worked for, you know. Well, there's, there's, there's two lessons there. First, my paternal grandfather, Giuseppe Finelli, was an uneducated man. And I was the first kid to go to college. And he looked at me and he spoke broken English, kind of like your grandfather, mm-hmm. right? And he said to me, ready? Remember something. The higher the monkey climbs the pole, the more he shows his ass. And that was at my law school graduation. Right. And I didn't know what that meant, right? And now I do, right? The higher you climb the pole the more you can mm-hmm. show your ass. And I never would let that happen to me because I, I think about my grandfather selling ice, delivering ice during the Depression. I think about my dad and my Uncle Lou starting a gas station uh, when they were denied loans because they were called grease monkeys and dirt balls and, and, and mm-hmm. overcame some prejudice themselves. Uh, I think about those things, and I, I, I honor their work and their heritage by remember, never forgetting where I came from. Uh, my clients are my friends. 
the people that I, that in the community are my, are us. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for me to stay humble because I'm really not that big a deal, right? I, I go, I do my job. They pay me to do it. Uh, and I like to do it well, but I got to tell you, when, I, when a plumber comes to my house and does a great job, mm-hmm. I stand there and watch in awe and say, how the heck did you do that, right? When, when, when I got a carpenter that can fix stuff and I can't, I look at that and say, how'd you do that? So I can do some things good. There's a lot of things I can't do good. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember that. So, so, so I'm not that big a deal in my own mind that uh, the fact that I, I practice law well because there's guys that plumb well. There's guys that are elect- great electricians. There's guys that are great carpenters that, that help me out. Sure. Life, right. So it's easy to, to, to just know who you are. Do you have a, like a pretrial routine, like especially a big trial? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Every case I try, I do a mock jury. And what that means is I have my staff go through the phone book and randomly call people, offer them 50 bucks to come to the office for three hours in the morning. We give you lunch, right? And I try my case in front of you. <laughs> and, and what I'll do, Alfredo, is I try to get at least 30 people. And we try, I'll try my case with all the warts, all the bad stuff. I, see, I don't want to win in front of a mock jury. I want to lose because I want to find out what's wrong with my case because I know I'm not smart enough to know everything. So what I'll do is I'll present my case to 30 people and then I'll split them off into groups of 10 and videotape them. And I'll ask them to deliberate and I watch them deliberate and I find out what are they talking about? And if all these 30 people are talking about the same things, that's pretty good evidence that the real jury is going to be talking about those same hmm. things. That's what this case is going to be about. Not what I think it's about. It's what they think it's about. So, you know, to get back to the sure. old arrogance thing, no, you're not the smartest guy in the room. What, what, if I'm in the room with 10 people, that, those 10 people collectively are a lot smarter than I am. Mm-hmm. So I want to hear what all those people are talking about and then that's my case. I'll give you an example. A couple of years ago, I was representing a young lady, late 20s, who had misdiagnosed breast cancer. And she had a lump in her breast, felt it, went to her local doctor, OBGYN, who told her, not a, not a problem, it's only a cyst. Months later, it's still there, got a little bigger, she comes back, the doctor says, don't worry about it, it's only a cyst. Months later, she comes back, same thing. So she goes to a different doctor and says, we need to get that mammogrammed. This isn't good. We need to get it biopsied. She has breast cancer. So what could have been a stage one breast cancer is now a stage three or four breast cancer, and her chances of survival are greatly diminished. So this misdiagnosis of cancer case. So I put this case in front of a mock jury, and in my mind, I'm thinking, who would be the ideal juror? If I could put 12 of the same people in a jury box to hear this case, who would they be? And I'll ask you, who would you, if you could pick 12 people for a 28-year-old woman, who would you want? 12 women. Of course. Mm. Uh, her, like her, right? Mm-hmm. My thoughts exactly. So in my 30 jurors, I've got three women under 35. Everybody else is over 35, split evenly between men and women. When the case gets deliberated, 
I've got 27 people telling me this is a great case. This girl is unfairly being treated, and she, she deserves to uh, recover. I have three people voting no. Guess who the three people three were? Women. Yes. And I, I couldn't believe this, so I call around to my, um, to my local, not local, my, my buddies, uh, my other lawyer buddies that do this stuff around the country, and we all get together and we find out that, that this is a thing called negative attribution, that all of the women are told that if you do self-breast exams and you do follow the rules, you'll be okay. So the younger women feel, well, because she's not okay, she must have done something wrong. Hmm. And all the younger women were saying, I would have gotten a second opinion. I would have gotten a third opinion. I would have gotten a fourth opinion. They were of the mindset they'd keep getting opinions until they got the one they wanted to hear. So I said to my opponent, we should settle this case because I'm going to get 12 women on that jury that are in their 20s, and right. they're, they're going to annihilate you, right? So my, my opponent did everything in his power to eliminate every, every female juror <laughs> between the age of 21 and 35, and I had a, juror, a, a jury comp, uh, comprised of 12 people with gray hair, and they found for, for my client. So, I mean, you're almost like a, it's like sociology class. In it, it is. It is. Mm -hmm. Uh, and same in criminal cases, you know, when, um, when you're, cl I've, I've had a lot of criminal cases where, uh, I'm not sure what the jury's going to pick on, what they're not going to pick on. And I'll bring a, a mock jury in and listen to them. And I'll think to myself, you know what, these 10, 12 people, they're really smart. Mm -hmm. I'm going to listen to them because if they're talking about it, my real jury's going to talk about the same thing. So I do that in every case. Before, you know, before we started, we were talking about like Tom Brady. Yeah. And your approach kind of reminds you, like, you're like, almost like Bill Belichick, like just going that extra. I mean, I don't know. Is that standard doing the mock? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. It, it, it is not standard. Uh, you talk about one of the questions you asked earlier, are all lawyers the same? You know, mm -hmm. are, no, we're not. Um, many of the top end lawyers that I know do mock juries. Mm -hmm. um, but locally, I think probably I'm the only one. So you, you think that's like probably the most important thing in terms of just your preparation? I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I think the preparation includes knowing your client. Whenever I, in every case I have, I go to my client's house and have a meal with them hmm. and hang out with them because I want to know who is this person? Where do they live? What's their circumstance? Where do they come from? What motivates them? What drives them? Uh, and when you get around, when you get around, you go to somebody's home, when you, when you go to somebody's home, you can, uh, you can get an appreciation of who this person is because you hear them interact with their spouse. You hear them s interact with their children. And I'll tell you something, Alfredo. When I find something about my client that I like, no matter how vile the public might think they are, mm -hmm. when you find something about someone that you like and you can hang on to that, it makes you want th to fight for them. Sure. Okay? If you understand that they were abused as a kid or you understand... What, where they're coming from, it gives you that motivation to, and a jury can tell if you like your client. Are you, is it lip service, mm. or do you really feel, feel strongly about this person? I'll give, you, I'll give you an example. Years ago, not too many years ago, we had a case involving an explosion at a plant that killed two men. And one of the men was a local 
they're both local, uh, but one of the guys was a little league coach. And I, I hung, I went around the little league field and found out a little bit about this guy, and they named the little league field after him eventually. But I met with his, I, I went to his home and, and sat with his family and, and found out how the oldest boy, who was the little league player, who eventually made it to the high school team, how devoted his father was to him, the guy that was killed. To the point where I got to meet the little league or the high school baseball coach, and he told a story. He said the uh, the day before the father was killed in this explosion, he said my my last memory was this: that the boy was the boy's uh, whose father was killed. He was the pitcher for the team, and he gave up a home run to lose the game, a very important game, mm-hmm. and he was devastated. And it was, a, it was an away game. And the dad comes down to the coach and says, Coach, I know that you want your team to ride home on the bus, but would it be okay if uh, my son rode home with me in the car? And the coach said to the dad, that'll be okay. And he said, the last image I have is that father walking across that baseball field with his arm around the son. Hmm. Now you tell that to a jury, because when I heard that, as I'm telling Absolutely. it now, yeah, I'm filled with yeah, emotion. Yeah, I can see you getting emotional about it. Okay, as I tell that now, uh, I f- I can feel the my own humanity. Uh, but when that coach told it, and you see people receiving what's real, uh, they get so filled up with the reality and the emotion mm-hmm. to understand the the bond between a father and a son. But you can't tell that by lip service. It has to be real. Sure. And you can't learn the reality unless you go find it yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, I would say 90% of you know people in jail, it's, it's not black and white. There's, you, know, you ever watched The Wire? Oh, I love The Wire. Yeah, it's, maybe, mean, maybe, it's, maybe the greatest show of all time. Of all time. I, mean, I hate to say that even above The Sopranos, but I mean... There's circumstance. I mean, I don't think as people we're inherently bad. You know what I mean? Maybe, maybe there's. I think that's a small number of people who are just like inherently bad. I think. Well, in my line of work, you you, you do come to understand that there is evil in the world. Mm-hmm. There there are inherently bad people. But to your point, most of us are good. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there are good people that had a bad day. Um. And what. When somebody commits a crime, what we need to, to do is to understand what, what happened here. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, how did this happen? And it can happen to you. I mean, for example, you, know, you, you could be, you could be um, walking down the street and be accosted by somebody. And are you going to defend yourself? Well, if you defend yourself, you better you better be ready to face a, a charge for assaulting somebody. Right. I mean, so it, it, there, it, there, in my world, there is no black, there is no white. It's gray. Mm-hmm. It, it, to, and to personalize, and I'll tell you, a few years ago, my home was robbed, and my wife calls me on the phone, pant, panting on the phone, hyperventilating. There's somebody trying to get in the house. There's somebody trying to get in the house. 
did you call 911? No, I called you. I said, get out of the house. The worst place to be during a home invasion is in the house because you're trapped. Out of the house, right? I'm on my way. I'll call 911. I go racing home. I've got my gun strapped on me. I'm a permitted carrier. Not knowing what I'm going to find. I get patched into the state police. I, li- I lived in Norwegian Township at the time. We had no police force. And the uh, state police were uh, miles away. So the, um, the police said, we're 10 minutes out at least. I said, this thing can be over in three. Mm-hmm. I get to my house. My wife's down there screaming, oh, my God, oh, my God, there's a guy in the house. He's got, a, he's got an axe. He's got a, this, that, and the other thing. And I don't know if the guy's trash in my house. I go up into the house, probably shouldn't have, but did. And I'm yelling, the police are on their way. Get out of here. Get out of here. Get out of here. No answer. A minute later, our phone rings. Our neighbor, Eddie Honor, calls me and says, he's panting. There was some guy in my daughter's bedroom. He's coming your way. He jumped out the second floor window. Uh, He's got an axe. Now I've got a gun. And at the time, we didn't have stand your ground. But as a lawyer, I know what self-defense is. Right. Self-defense is... If you can retreat without killing somebody, if you can get away, you're not allowed to kill somebody. Mm-hmm. But I got this guy running around the neighborhood terrorizing people with an axe. Like he might kill somebody else. Right. So I see the guy running through the, the yard, or running through the woods, coming towards my house, coming back. And I'm thinking to myself, do I have to run away here or, or can I shoot him? Right. And I'm thinking to myself, if I shoot him, then I'm going to have to answer questions about why didn't you run away? But I thought to myself, you know what? I'm willing to take that chance. I'm going to have to shoot this guy if he gets too close. <laughs> right? So there's the gray. Right? I've got, if I had, if I had shot him, maybe I would have been charged with, with murder. Right. Because uh, I'd have, a, uh, I'd have a, a, a prosecutor saying, you needed to run away. Would you represent yourself? I would have represented myself. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and I think in this county, I'd stand a pretty good chance of walking, <laughs> yeah, I th- I walking myself a, out of think, that room. I think it'd be good. Yeah. What would you do if, if you weren't a lawyer? If I weren't a lawyer, I'd probably be in the, I'd probably be a, um, surgeon. You know, that, that's, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated by that, you mm-hmm. know, fixing people up. But uh, I could see myself cracking people's chests open and pulling right. their hearts out and fixing them. What um, <clears throat> I always hear, um, you know, I think when people, you know, I have friends that are lawyers, and I think when they first start out, because I, I see like I don't know movies, and I think like are movies accurate in terms of like actual day to day? Not really. It, I mean, you don't you don't settle a case in one hour and have the trial. And right. Else. Yeah. Um, what's your advice to like a young lawyer, like? Take any case you can or, or specialize or the best advice I can give a young lawyer is to understand that these are people's lives. They're not files. It's not a job. It's not something you're working on that when somebody I have people come to me all the time Alfredo and say I don't want to bother you with this I know this isn't big this isn't a big deal and I'll say is it a big deal to you yeah it's Mm -hmm. a big deal to me I said well if it's a big deal to you 
it's a big deal to me. So in my mind, I'm as motivated to help the little guy with a little problem as I am with the big fancy case I might get on TV. Why? Because that little problem to that little guy is his world. And, and it, as a young lawyer, if you can understand that when, when, a, when, a, when a normal citizen gets a speeding ticket or they get accused of something, right, that is their world. Mm-hmm. Or if they get sued because of uh, whatever, th- that is th- their everything. And you need to treat it as that. Okay? It's not, it's, it shouldn't be a burden. It shouldn't be a hassle when they call, right? Because their, th- their world is uh, revolving around this. And if you treat them right... And you, and you return their phone calls and you understand where they're coming from, they will love you forever. Mm-hmm. They will be your client forever. And they will tell everybody what a great lawyer you are. Okay? So you treat the little cases as though they're big cases. And then eventually the big cases will come to you. So, so it's, it's do, doing well by doing good. Who's your favorite um, film or TV lawyer? Favorite film or TV lawyer? It would have to be Paul Newman in The Verdict. Mm, okay. Because you talk about being real. When he stands in front of that jury and lays his heart out in front of them, that is real. And I've learned from him. In fact, um, I've, uh, I've used that. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you also, I wasn't a lawyer, but in, in, the, woman's, in the movie Son of a Woman, Al Pacino, mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade, when he gave the defense of Charlie in front of the school. Oh, right, at the end. Right, yeah. the Baird School. Yeah. Right? Uh, when, he's, when he's got his heart laying out on the... On the, on the, that, that's, that's, the that's what lawyering is. I have oftentimes st- stood in front of juries and said, look... I don't know if I'm good enough. I don't know if I'm smart enough. All I can tell you is I've done my best for my client, right? Mm -hmm. And for the last year, I've represented Alfredo in this case, and I've done my best. And I hope my best is good enough, but I've given him my best. And at this point, like, there's nothing more I can do. So I'm taking this burden from my shoulders trying to protect him from this government onslaught. And I'm passing that burden from my shoulders to yours. Protect him. Because it's no longer, I can't do anymore. Mm -hmm. It's on you. So I've learned from the TV lawyers, in a way, that if you're completely honest and humble and tell the juries about your own insecurities and your own imperfections, they will welcome you into their lives, into their hearts, mm-hmm. and, give you, and, and give you credibility. Because when, when, you, when you try a case, and you, and you ask the jury to believe you, you are laying it all out there. Like If, if, they, if they don't believe you, that's complete rejection. They're telling you, mm-hmm. we don't believe you, right? And, and I understand that. And we're asking a lot of them to believe us. And why should they believe me? Because I'm telling you who I am, what my fears are, what my imperfections are, and what I hoped to do here. So I got that from Paul Newman in The Verdict. 
And I got that from Lieutenant Colonel Frank Slade. And uh, what about, what about uh, Vinny Gambino? Well, Vin- <laughs> <laughs> well, you got to have a girlfriend that knows a lot about cars. Yeah, right. That, that yeah. Was a- yeah. Oh, that was the last question I wanted to ask you. Is there, is there a case that, that didn't go your way that, that still bothers you from your career? Yes. I'll, I'll reframe it. Mm-hmm. There's a case that went my way that I wish it hadn't gone my way. Hmm. I represented a, a man who came to see me, and he was alleged to have molested his babysitter. Hmm. Okay. And I'll never forget this as long as I live because I, I live with it with guilt. I know I did my job, but as a human and as a father, it bothers me. Mm-hmm. This guy was alleged to have come home drunk one night with his wife at 2 or 3 in the morning. Wife goes to bed, and he, dad, is supposed to give the babysitter a ride home. He's in his mid-30s. She's 14. And he is alleged to have gotten down on the sofa late in a drunken, slovenly way and uh, start trying to kiss on her and trying to feel her up, mm-hmm. those kind of things. Um, without getting too graphic, sure. he uh, assaults her. And she... He goes to bed drunk or passes out, I forget. But she calls her mother. And the, the uh, tape recording of the, of the voicemail she leaves, because her mother was asleep. This was the day before voicemail, but it was a, 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 a playback machine. She says on the phone, Mom, I can't, you got to come, you got to come. Something terrible happened. Please come, please come, please come. And you can feel like the raw emotion. So we go to trial, and my guy's telling me he didn't do it, he didn't do it, he didn't do it. And they get to the point where they're going to play the tape. And they play the tape, and there's country western music playing in the background. Hmm. I'm thinking, wow, that's curious. So I asked this girl, she testifies, I said, it was what, 2 or 3 o'clock? Yep. TV's off? Yep. Radio off? Yep. Everybody asleep? Yep. House quiet, yep. So we get to the point of the trial where I get to talk to the jury and I say, that tape had to be, and because I really believed this at the time, mm-hmm. that tape had to be fake. She says it's quiet, no TV, no radio. And I played the tape, and there's, you know, there's a there's a Willie Nelson song playing in the background. I get done my speech, the uh district attorney gives their speech the jury's out deliberating the da comes running in and says to me there's been a terrible mistake we have the original tape the original tape has no no country music playing on it the 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 copy we played was a copy that was made by a state cop at the barracks Mm. with music playing in the background So the judge says to me, well, what about it? They want to reopen their case. I said, judge, we already gave a closing. You already gave them, the, you gave them a charge. You gave them the law. They're, they're out deliberating. I object. He says, I, I agree. We cannot reopen the case. The jury finds the guy not guilty. 
I'm walking through the parking lot. A juror grabs me and says, hey, buddy, you did a good job for your client. I was going to find him guilty, but until I heard that country music planner, I, 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 I realized that this was a setup. A month later, the guy calls me back. He's arrested again for a, a molesting a babysitter. <sighs> so that's one I have to live with. Right. Another one I have to live with, a guy comes to me, DUI, and that he's found passed out in Branchdale, four flat tires, drunk up against the uh, guardrails, behind the wheel, a .35. We go to trial, and I say to him, What's your story? He said, I wasn't driving the car. Well, who was driving the car? Some guy I met at the, uh, out in uh, Higgins, at the, at the Higgins Gun Club, a guy named Beefy. So Beefy, who was from Pottsville, wanted to ride home, and he drove. He was driving my, uh, driving my car. I said, so Beefy's driving your car. Yep. So we go to trial, and he's acquitted. They believe that he wasn't... The, the, the cop kind of messed up the case. Long and sh short of it is, the guy's acquitted. Uh, a month later, my client is involved in a motor vehicle accident, drunk out of his mind, killed three people. Mm. Had he not been acquitted, he would have not been able to drive that car. So these are the burdens we carry with right. us. And, uh, and, and, and those I have to live with. It's not easy. No, absolutely not. What's your favorite, um, not guilty pleasure, but in terms of, of living in the read, like, do you like city chicken? I love city chicken. You kidding Cause, me? Because some people hate city chicken. No, no, no. If you're from Schuylkill County and you don't like Halupkis, city chicken, um, Halushki. I don't, see, I don't know the difference. Halush, Halushki is... Alfredo. <laughs> I know you're Italian like I am. I know. But come on. I got to stay in my lane here. So halushki is cabbage, right? Yeah. Well, cabbage and some noodles. Right. And then halupki is just... The cabbage with the, with the meat on the inside. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. I love that stuff. Uh, city chicken. Love city chicken. Christy Joy made the best city chicken. Yeah, the they did. Yeah. Actually, Del Camps in St. Clair. <laughs> good, good city chicken. You can buy Del Camps yeah. uh, city chicken? Yeah. And it's not bad? It's really good, yeah. Can I have some more of your mom's wine? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I had a Bellini, actually, for the first time last where, year. Where have you been? I, I, you know, I, <laughs> my parents didn't expose me to this kind of stuff, so. Now, I thought, you were a, I thought you were a real skook. I am, but, like, I'm not in a lot of ways. Well, listen, you got to hang out. But the Bellini's was good. It wasn't, like. Well, it's, 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 it's like, you know, fried potato it, cake. I, I, I waited in line. I went to... Um, What's the one out in Minersville? South Cass. Uh, no, uh, St. Nick's one. Mm. The 4th of July. Yeah. They were saying that's the best Bellinis around. So we waited in line. I don't know. We, there was a line for... There was a line for if you if you get 10 or under. And that line was like... It was like a half hour wait. Well, then get the 10. Get, get so I got the 10. 10 I got yeah. over 10, even though it was like two of us. Doesn't matter. So I was like, I'll just give them away. But I, it was it was okay. It was a little... Well, I, I'll tell you, my partner, Albert Evans, 
is the guy that fries the bellinis at the St. Nick's. Uh, oh, okay. That's right. You don't have to tell He's him. He's a that. real scoop. <laughs> and I won't tell him what you just said. I mean, they were good. You got to salt them up pretty good. And then I found out you can't put uh, ketchup on pierogies. That's sacrilege. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, onions, a little butter, mm. fry them, boil them, whatever. But uh, you've been away from the county too long, brother. Uh, well, yeah, I just got back, well, about two years ago, so I'm just easing in. But. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, ketchup, that's like, you know, one time my my um, cousin from Canada came down with his girlfriend, and my mom made this, like, you know, she made a dinner, and I don't know what nationality she was, but she put ketchup on, on the pasta. On pasta? On pasta, yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> which, is, which is bad. Yeah, and yeah. I, my mom, I, I mean. Did your mother, uh, like, did, she, did, did she, her face change? You could I tell. Mean, I mean, they broke up soon after. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's a that's a deal. I mean, killer. I don't know. I don't know if it was you know because of that, but it had to be because of. That. I mean, there was a good correlation there. Yeah. So, all right. Well, anything else? You. This is great. Well, it's been. I've had an interesting career. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, I've tried to do the best I can do, and just be honest, and 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 live by my grandfather's motto. You know, no matter how climb the, no matter high how high climb. <laughs> Pardon me. No matter it's how it's the wine, yeah. How high the monkey climbs the pole, don't let him see your ass. Yeah, I mean, like I said, your, your name is synonymous with just you, you know being the best lawyer. I mean, and that's to be the best at anything. Like I said, that's it. Really is. There's a certain sense of accomplishment when you could do that, and obviously you've worked for it. And it doesn't come by accident. Well, and, and you know, it's it's been 35 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean. Uh, n- nobody said I'm the best lawyer uh, when I was uh, 20 right. years. Yeah, okay. that's what that Dustin Hoffman said. He said, my, my overnight success took me 15 years. And my overnight success took me 35. Mm-hmm. It, it, uh, it, it's true. I mean, you have to earn the respect of the community, and it has to be earned every single day. Mm-hmm. There are no days off. There's, if you're a phony, if you're a fake, people will know that. Oh, absolutely, especially around here. Yeah, I mean... In a small community, as I said, I know you, your family, mm-hmm. your mom, your dad, your uncles, your aunts, your cousins, right? If you're a phony, we know it. Now, you can get away with it in New York, maybe. You can get away with it in Philly, okay? But when, you, when you're here with, with us in our little community, if you're not real and if you're not credible, we all know it. Mm-hmm. We all know it. And, I, and, and I've said this to my friends in the medical community, and I've said it to my friends in the, in the legal community. If I ask my, my doctor buddies, give me the five best doctors in the county, every doctor will have the same five names. Mm-hmm. Every doctor will have the same five names for the lousiest doctors. Lawyers, everybody will have the same five names for the best right. and the worst. We all know who we are. And if you, if you understand that being real and being genuine and being loyal is where it's at mm-hmm. and understanding no matter how important you think you are when that when that little guy walks in your office if you understand he, he's as important as you are mm-hmm. and his life to him is as important as your life is to you and his kids are as important to him as your ours to you and that he loves his wife as much as you love your life if you respect him in that way and you treat him that way and you do your best He'll be forever your best advocate. He will tell everybody you're the greatest lawyer in the world, right? Uh, even if you're not. 
but that, I think that, that's, that's how I approached it. I think your uh, law firm picture is what gets you in most business. That's, <laughs> is, that, is that it? Yeah. yeah. That, you guys are probably the best looking group of... Well, that's a good picture. Well, thank you, Alfredo, because I tell people, they, I say, Here, here's the secret to our success. I've hired younger, smarter, better looking guys than mm-hmm. me, and I get out of the way. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Let them do their thing. That's a good strategy. It's a great strategy. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, I think that's it. Thank you. Thank I, you so I've much. I enjoyed this. Yeah. We'll uh, sign off the air here and finish the wine. Thank you so much. Thank you, Alfredo. All right, so thank you. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed that. Again, you could like us, uh, subscribe to us on iTunes. Also find us on on Facebook, Coal Region Campfire. And honestly, please email me if you have any ideas about guest things, whatever it is, any anything on your mind, anything Coal Region related. Please let me know. I'll be more than happy to uh, to look into it and see if it'll make a good episode. You know, any kind of feedback, positive or negative, you know, don't don't worry, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Feel free to just throw anything out there. Uh, I want this to be as interactive as, as possible, and uh, hopefully you guys enjoy. So I'll see you guys next week. Thank you.